Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord Jesus. Amen. Today we're going to walk through the account of Genesis 3, and while we will encounter the problem of human corruption that we all experience and that we all sadly participate in, I want to focus as well on the character of God as it unfolds in this specific story for us and in our lives today. Man and woman are told what is good, eat from any plant, any tree in the garden, which includes the tree of life. But do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of it, you will die. And what do the man and the woman do? Well, after an interaction with the serpent, as I just talked about with the kids, they eat. They ignore God's definition of what is good, eat from any tree except that one. And instead, they choose to define what is good in their own eyes. They make up their own definition of what is good, and that includes eating of the tree. They abandon God's wisdom, and instead they seek to create their own. The results? Everything fractures. They hide themselves from one another. They were created as equals, right? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. They are God's image together. But now they're ashamed. Because maybe what man thinks is good is different than what the woman defines as good. And so they cover themselves with leaves. They hide from one another and then they separate and hide from God. Their relationship together is fractured, and so is their relationship with God as they've abandoned his definition of what is good. This is the sad reality of the world today, the fractured state of the human condition that we all live in. But what does God do? God goes walking in the garden. This in the text is actually not supposed to be a huge surprise. Sometimes we read this and it's like, wow, God is walking in the garden. But Eden, after all, is God's dwelling place in the creation. Eden, you see, has all of this language around it, which we're not going to get into today, that signifies it is God's abode on the earth. Sort of like an early idea of what the temple was. God set up residence in the creation that he delights in. God, from the beginning, desires to be in his world that he made, to delight in it in an intimate way, and to be in close proximity to the humans that he made, to work his garden. Right? While walking around, he says, where are you? He expects to be there with them and to see them. He does not have to reside with humanity. He chooses to and wants to, and when he cannot find them, he calls out to them. So as we watch God's character unfold, we have a God who delights in the world that he has made and who goes looking for humanity. When he finds them and they start pointing the fingers of blame, the man points the finger of blame at God, right? It's the woman that you gave to me. The woman points the finger at the snake. The snake deceived me. But in the midst of this finger pointing, what does God do? He talks with them. He asks questions. There is a patience that seems to be at work here and a fairness as he's seeking to figure out what exactly all happened. And then come the curses. 
The first curse is spoken to the snake. Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. This curse is actually good news for humanity. The first response after this questioning of man and woman is to address the snake that seemed to throw a wrench in the entire system. And on top of that, in this curse against the serpent, God shows he's actually still committed to partnering with humanity. As I've talked about before, God made humanity in his image, meaning they have his authority to rule over the world. In those days, only kings had the image of God, had the authority of the God. Humans are to reflect to mirror God from youngest to oldest. All humans are his representatives as he set them up as sort of his like co-partners, like he partners with humanity to rule over his creation. And what does God say in the curse to the serpent? A human, a human offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the snake Even though man and woman have defined good and evil on their own, God will not abandon what he set up as good. And that includes having humanity participate in the care of creation, and now, amazingly, even in the crushing of the snake's head. Even after this creation-altering screw-up, they still bear his image. God will confirm this later on in the days of Noah as well when he tells them, don't kill humans. Don't kill humans because they are the image of God. And so we see a God who is going to persist in what he created as good and to persist in partnering with his human creatures. The second curse. The second curse is maybe not where you would expect it. And this is actually something I just learned recently, and it's to me, quite significant. God does not say to the woman, cursed are you. He doesn't say, cursed are you. To the man, he doesn't say, cursed are you. The specific use of the word curse is not directly applied to the man and the woman in this passage. Instead, the second curse is spoken to the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's actually not until later on in the story of Cain and Abel when Cain kills his brother that we hear God speak a word of curse directly against a human being. Cursed is Cain. But before we get to this second curse of the ground, we get something else. Something else that God speaks to the woman. Now, before we step into this, it's important to acknowledge that the portion spoken to the serpent that we just covered isn't really about just the serpent. It's about man and woman and their offspring as well. It is something that affects all humanity, right? Not just the serpent. The portion at the end of this section, spoken just to the man, if you will, to Adam, about work, toil, and death, is not just about the man. Though God addresses Adam specifically, the reality is that Adam's not the one who dies, Both Adam and Eve, all men, all human beings, women, all die. I think it's important then to read this middle portion addressed to the woman in a similar way. 
somehow this also is about all humanity. God says, I will increase your sorrow in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. While it is important to recognize that the word curse is not specifically spoken here, it is still a negative reality that is going to result from their decision. What is interesting, though, is the language of bringing forth children in Hebrew is not specific to women in the scriptures. The genealogies in Genesis use the same word for men having children, right? Men beget. Abraham has a child, and it's the same word for his son Isaac. So in what was once to be something of joy, of reflecting the creative God and bringing forth life, now there is toil, pain, and sorrow, somehow for both men and women. But, and this is important, that does not mean that the pain of bringing forth children for men and women is the same. I will never claim that what my wife has done to bring our children into this world is remotely the same to what I have done. Not trying to claim that. But rather that these words are meant to be having, if we can look at them this way, ramifications for all humans in some way or another. The next portion, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, is a passage that has been used and abused in all sorts of misunderstood and destructive ways. I've heard some people read this and think that it's saying that women are sexually attracted to men and men have authority over women. And that's just the way the world is. It's a really bad understanding. The word desire here and rule over in Hebrew show up in the same sentence structure one other time in the scriptures. And it's the next chapter of the story of Cain and Abel. God tells Cain the same sentence structure. Sin desires you. It's this crouching thing at the door. It desires to destroy you. You must rule over it. Sin is described as a crouching thing. And Cain is supposed to dominate sin in some way so that it doesn't rule his life. Desire here is the desire to destroy Rule is a desire to dominate and overpower. So when God says, your desire will be for your husband, it's this to destroy and he will rule over you. It's this dominate and it's this back and forth that people over and over are just going to keep trying to overpower each other. He is describing what happens when humans define good and evil for themselves. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. When people define good for themselves, they are willing to harm, to dominate, and destroy others. They're created as equals. They share his image. They are to look at one another and say, this too is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. But humans have this tendency to define good as something that benefits them as an individual or their tribe. And so humans keep jostling for power. As one tries to dominate the other, the other tries to overpower the other. And this isn't about husbands and wives only, or men and women. This desire to dominate one another is carried out throughout the scriptures over and over and over. Again, we see it with Cain and Abel overpowering and killing his brother. We see it with Abraham and Sarah as they both jostle for protection for their future and their lives and are willing to harm each other and Hagar, their servant, in the midst of it. We see it between Jacob's wives, sisters, Rachel and Leah, 
right? This pain and sorrow of childbirth and not having children. And what are they doing? They're trying to overpower one another to win time with Jacob and make sure they have children. They're all jostling for power. And it's the result is this pain and sorrow and even death. Again, humanity is created in his image. And that's the real tragedy here. Humanity that reflects God to the world Humanity that is created to partner with him is devouring and destroying one another and is corrupting the abundance of life that God intended. And then there's the next curse. Woman was not given the specific language of curse, and again, neither is the man here. Instead, God says, cursed is the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. When humanity defines good and evil for themselves, what happens? Pain, toil, and the horrifying reality of human beings unraveling into dust. Death. As humans do the opposite of what God says is good, of God bringing life into the world, the only thing that can result is the opposite. You turn away from the source of life, and there's the absence of life, which is death. Death is now here. This, again, is the fractured state we live in. Those who are to be God's partners in the creation are jostling for power, untrusting, blaming, decaying, and dying. So what will God do with these humans who have frustrated and corrupted the abundance of life, the fruitfulness of the world? What will he do with these humans who, in their desire to dominate one another, out of their own definitions of good, are destroying one another? What will he do with these ones who bear his image, but have ignored the God they reflect to one another in the world, and have turned on him and on one another? He makes them clothing. He makes them clothing. He addresses their shame because of their jaded beliefs about what is good. He covers them, right? The thing that's separating them and keeping them hiding and covering themselves from each other and from him, he covers them so that they would not hide but rather would be together. He went walking in the garden. He went looking for and calling out for them. He cursed the serpent and promised that its head would be crushed. He made them clothing to provide for them. And then there's this conversation that takes place. They become like us. They cannot eat from the tree of life and live forever. And so he kicks them out of the garden. He exiles them. This is a sad reality, a punishment, if you will. Exile, no longer in the garden, no longer as close to the dwelling place of God in the world. But it's also an act of mercy. God does not want this horrifying state of humanity dominating and destroying one another to be their eternal state. He specifically says, I don't want them to eat of the tree of life and have this continue on. And because he does not want them to live like this forever, he exiles them away from the tree of life until he can resolve this problem. So as we're tracking along with God's character, This God desires to dwell in his creation. He seeks out human creatures because he desires to dwell with them. He listens. He's patient. He seems to refrain from speaking 
language of curse specifically upon people in this instance. He makes them clothing to address their shame. He protects them by exiling them so that this horrible state won't stay forever. And here's the last thing for us today. They don't die in that day. They don't die. Remember what God tells them. On the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. And they don't. They turn away from the very source of life, and yet they don't die. This gets explained in many different ways, from things like spiritual death and the like. But it seems to me something maybe a bit more simpler. God protects them from the ramifications of their choice. The only result that could possibly happen from turning away from God's definition of good, the only thing that can happen when you turn away from life itself is death. They turn away and they don't die, I believe, because God in his mercy sustains them, protects them from the immediate outcome of their actions. He doesn't want his creation to fail, even though it's fractured and failing. A God who dwells, desires to be with humanity, partners with humanity, will persist with humanity, who relents from cursing humanity, who heals their shame, who wants to resolve this condition so that it doesn't continue for eternity and doesn't want humans to die. Who is this God? We call him Jesus, the image of God. This desire of God and flesh to partner and reign through humanity. The fullness of his desire to protect us, to heal and bring life. The one who is willing to become the curse, right? God relents from cursing humanity. And yet he is willing to step under the curse itself so that our fractured state would be made whole. And so that we can taste of eternal life. And live in his presence. We do so now in small ways by the Spirit and his gifts of grace. But we also do with the promise that he will return and dwell here because this is what he desires. And we will live with him in that day forever. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.